But you know, he's exactly right. We just have to keep doing the work that the Lord's called us to do. As an idea comes into our mind, we do it. Sometimes people have said to me over the, year, how, over the years, how do you know who to support even as missionaries? We don't go looking for people. God just brings us people. And God will bring us ideas and concepts. But it's up to us to do something with them, right? I mean, that's, that's how this works. God says, I rescued you to serve me. I'll bring you ideas, but I'm expecting you to follow through with them. And uh, we certainly are seeing some of those things happen. We just don't want to be finished with what the Lord has for us. Can you imagine how terrible it would be for the Lord to say, you know, I had this church over on Airport Road for a lot of years, but they used to do some stuff, and I was blessing because they were doing things for me. They were obeying, but now not so much anymore. So I just kind of leave them alone. How tragic, how tragic would that be? I would pray that the Lord would take us all home before he says that, wouldn't you? I just can't imagine such a thing. If you know that you've been rescued from the Lord, excuse me, rescued by the Lord, don't you want everybody else to know that same thing? All right, well, let's pray, and uh, we're going to look at the text this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 23 through 25, and I just have some thoughts for you. We'll see how far we get. I don't know if we'll get through all this this morning, but we'll just trust the Lord for this. So let's pray, and then I'll have you stand. Father, thank you for what a great weekend, for several weekends now of uh, weeks of, of things that have been going on as we've seen your hand moving among us. And Lord, as I was just talking just a second ago that it is our continual prayer that you would see fit to use us or that you would never grow frustrated or weary with us because we are obstinate and rebellious people. Lord Brother Iman put it so well just a moment ago and Dr. Jim the other night even put it so well that we are strategically positioned by you. It has been so purposeful by you to put us where we are in this community that we would just live out the gospel in front of everyone. Thank you for these reminders. Thank you for these challenges. And Lord, may we just do what you've called us to do. Help us, Lord, even in our growing older years, that we not get tired of serving, that we not get tired of praying in our lives, that prayer lives, speaking love and truth to one another and to our neighbors, they might be rescued. And Father, thank you for this gospel message, that there is good news. As Brother Iman just said, the world says there's always just bad news, bad news, bad news. But Father, we're here this morning because you have given to us the good news that you have come to pay the debt of our sin. And so we honor you. We pray that you would receive our worship this morning and that it would be pleasing to you that our hearts would be pure before you, Lord, that we would confess even right now whatever may be keeping us from knowing you fully and being what you want us to be with you and with each other, that you would help us to repent of all of those things. Lord, we pray for the sick among us, those that are physically ill and those that are emotionally ill, mentally ill. Lord, we pray for those that are away from us that couldn't be here today. Lord, we pray for our community and just ask that you would 
be pleased to use just a small band of believers to make your name great right here. We pray, Lord, that you would shine your truth across the hearts of the world. We pray for those parts of the world that are so unstable, so full of war and strife and so much hurt, so much bloodshed, so much confusion and agony, so much deception. Lord, that you would bring peace into those hearts. Lord, what a day it's going to be when we're together with you. We long for that day. But we're quick to be reminded that you have work for us. If you're done with us, you'll take us off the planet. And Lord, until that time comes, help us to be faithful. Now speak into our hearts, we would ask, Lord, just the truth of this message this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, would you stand with me? Let's read together verses 23 through 25, Matthew chapter 4. Some of you all are getting up pretty slowly, so I'll wait here a minute, get the muscles all stretched out. All right, so Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Imagine that. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, and demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. So that ends chapter 4, of which we're about to embark next time on some of the greatest chapters, in my opinion, of all the word of the Lord as God himself preaches on the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll tackle those in the days coming. But just go with me for just a minute into some critical thinking, and that is to remember that the world has over and over again proclaimed, or rather I should say the Bible has proclaimed a warning that there are false teachers everywhere. And um, we've talked about that a little bit. You, if you were with us on Wednesday night, you know we had a long discussion in our group right here about some of the things that have gone on in the news uh, among the Christian, in the Christian circles and a lot of it's centering around beliefs of false teachers and, and, and people who are stepping out of bounds. And the Bible talks a lot. In fact, if you pay attention to this subject, much of what the Bible brings to us, God's Word, is about being careful to look out for false teachers. In fact, we could go way back. Moses said in Deuteronomy 13, it's a little lengthy here, and I want to give you several others, and just kind of make mental notes of these, or just write the reference down. Moses said in his giving of the law, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, now listen, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. So it comes true, let's follow these other gods, interesting, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Interesting. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. 
But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Very, very serious. And there are other passages. Let's just look at a couple in the New Testament. Matthew 24, 11, Jesus himself saying many, talking about the end days, we've talked about this in relation to Revelation, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. You have to key in on these words. The Lord is very specific here. Many will come. Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 32, false Christs and false prophets will arise and they will show signs and wonders. Amazing. In order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. 2 Peter 2, 1, false prophets also arose among the people just as there were, will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master, notice that's a capital M, at least in the New American Standard, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, The Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. How is that? Because they'll pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Listen, I've said this before, we need to reiterate it again, that there are only two teachings. There is the teaching of God and there's the teaching of Satan. There's nothing else. Anything that falls in a gap beyond that is non-existent. There's only the teaching of the Lord himself and the teaching of Satan. Meaning that whomever's out there teaching something other than the Christ, it's a demonic teaching. 2 Peter 3.3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And Jude 1.18, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And these people are being referred to in Scripture as ravenous wolves. That's how the Lord describes them. That's how ferocious their spiritual attack really is. Ezra 22, excuse me, Ezekiel 22:27. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey. Just get that picture in your mind, that visual. By shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. John 10:12. This is New Testament. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And then in Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You know, over the years, <clears throat> churches have really done a very poor job in a lot of ways of replacing certain men of God in the pulpit. There have been lots of stories about that because they were not paying attention to these very truths. It's hard to believe that at one point a man can be preaching the truth of God's word and people not absorb the truth after many years, <clears throat> excuse me, and then select for themselves a man that they have not well counseled or looked into the life of to determine and discern whether this person is the one who should be leading the flock. And unfortunately, a lot of people have really um, lost their way. Churches have lost their way because of that. I've heard many stories like that. 
of how this pastor was a great pastor and the next guy comes in and it's just a damage to the whole thing. I think this is what the Lord is talking about. As we come to the ministry of Jesus, many are going to accuse him also of being a false prophet, if you can believe that. Imagine calling Jesus a false prophet, but it did happen in John 10, beginning in verse 20, 21. Many of them were saying he has a demon as an insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of a demon-possessed man. Come on, get your head screwed on right. A demon can't open the eyes of a blind man, can he? You see this bantering back and forth, even about the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And that's not uncommon for today. There are many people that will wonder, who is this Christ? What are you talking about? I don't know what you're saying about him. That's just a man because they only see the flesh. They don't see the spirit. Matthew 12, 23, and all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees, this is the religious Jewish leaders, said, heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And of course, you know, Jesus completely refuted that, saying that's ridiculous. A kingdom can't stand if it's divided. How can that be the case? Now, we know better. We've learned over the course of these weeks that Jesus is truly who he says he is. You believe that already. But just to reiterate what Matthew talks about, remember he came in the power of God by miraculous means, a miraculous birth. The angels heralded him. I mean, what a beautiful picture that was as we looked at that. Herod, recognizing the truth of the prophecies, desired to kill him out of his own selfish pride, but he knew there was something to this, that this was not just made-up conjecture. We saw the wise men, and as they brought the gifts, laid them at the feet of Jesus as the baby, traveling such a great distance to honor him as the true Christ. And, of course, John the Baptist's message and how he gave up the right of his own message so that Jesus could take over, he knew People knew, we've seen all this, the descending of the Holy Spirit on him. So we've had this great, great picture of who Jesus is, proving to us that he is the Christ. He is God come in the flesh. It's always so fascinating to me how we can say we believe these things and hear these things and we leave unaffected. I mean, wouldn't our prayer this morning be wise to be saying, Lord, as we leave this place today, would we be affected would we really believe what we've said we've heard? What our words, what our lips have portrayed, what we've proclaimed from our heart that we're here to worship this God and we leave here affected? These people were affected. And we're going to see even more about that here in just a minute. So you remember now, just catching us up today, last time we learned in the historical context of it all, Jesus has made his way up to the northern part of of the, the country there. He's gone past Nazareth, the place he lived for 30 years. I thought about this this week, too, and I mentioned this briefly, but I think it's very interesting. Here's how the world will typically respond to God's people. The world loves God's people as long as they stay in their box. We've said this before. You can have many, many friends, and you can work hard to make friends, and I bet Brother Iman and Mary would say this, as you begin to make friends with people, it becomes a real spiritual challenge to go to the next level, which is to go from friendship that you've taken a long time to make to now saying, okay, we've got some business to do here, which is to introduce them to Jesus, who is going to radically change their lives. 
And what I mean by that is I feel that pressure on a lot of days of making friends with people and then understanding that there's going to come a time where they're going to need to hear the truth of what God wants them to know, which may mean the friendship is going to be greatly challenged. That's what happened with Jesus in Nazareth. Jesus lived in that city for 30 years. And everybody loved him until he started proclaiming the message of the kingdom. That they needed to repent. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't everybody's friend. Now again, it was in, God, it was in God's divine timetable and his plan. Jesus was fulfilling this perfectly. But that's why he left, left Nazareth to fulfill his plan. But also the people didn't want him there anymore. And so he makes his way up into Capernaum where he calls his first of four disciples. We saw that last time. For the purpose of using them, these unlikely people, and that's how we are, right? Laurel Hill Baptist Church, a bunch of unlikely people. Brother Iman talked about him. I'm going to use him a lot because he told me I was old <laughs> earlier. <laughs> Who would ever dream that God would raise up a young man in Bethlehem? Catholic? Palestinian? To be used in such a way? I mean, God is not limited, is he? To marry a young lady from Arizona, right? To have beautiful children, to be now in Sterling, Virginia of all places. I mean, you can't make that up, right? You can't just conjure that kind of thing up. God does that. But God did that with each of us. He, I'm going to say it again, he strategically, purposefully planted you in the family that he wanted you to grow up in and the place that you're living in now and where you are in life now so that you would hear him and obey and follow him. We are very unlikely people. All of us have a story. In fact, somebody said to me just the other day, they said, Bruce, I bet if I ask you about your congregation, you could tell me something about each one of them. And I said, yeah, absolutely, of course I could. That's because you all have your own story. And you've shared that story in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good, like we all do. But the point is, is that God has put you where you are for his purposes. And that's what God is doing here with these people. Don't ever look at the Bible as some book that's distant from you. Look at it as God saying to you, look, yes, this was the timing for their lives, but I have you where I want you. And I expect you, I want you, I love you enough to be using you. So don't deny what I'm doing in your life. That's a mini message that we heard last time as I just um, elaborate on that. And the purpose is, like Jude would say in verse 22, we are to have mercy on some who are doubting, because there are people like that, people who are weak in their faith, save others, even snatching them out of the fire, which Peter will repeat in 2 Peter. And some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. In other words, you're going to have to deal with a lot of things. Dr. Jim said in our meeting yesterday to the elders and deacons, ministry is messy. People are messy, right? Now you say, no, I do a good job cleaning my house. I'm not talking about cleaning your house. I'm talking about the soul. We bring a lot of junk to the table. We bring a lot of frustrations, a lot of irritations. We got it just, there's just a lot of mess in our lives. Well, how beautiful is it that the Lord called us in the middle of our mess to be used for him? 
And that's how we should look at it. He didn't have to do that, did he? I look at some of your faces and I know how many years you've been serving the Lord. I know what the struggles are that you've been through. You know what my struggles have been over the years. And we look at that and we go, man, we just shake our head and say, really? Yeah, because God had a purpose and he does have a purpose. So don't give up on that purpose. All right, now today, John, excuse me, Matthew continues just with a few more proofs here and we won't get through all of this, I don't think. Basically, Matthew records for us two different paths, two specific things, and that is ways he's demonstrating the deity of Jesus, which were by the spoken word and then through the use of miracles. So not only do we have all this background behind us of who Jesus is, but now as Jesus steps into the light of his preaching ministry, we're going to hear him use his words but also back it up by his miracles as a support. And this again to me as we begin the entrance of, by the way, let me back up and say this, chapters 5 through 9, if you understand this from your reading that we did, and I know that was a lot of reading, you begin to see that this is just the introduction to what will be elaborated on in those chapters. Okay, The preaching of the gospel and the teaching, and also the miracles. So as you're keeping that in context, that'll help you. So let's see how this unfolds. There are three parts to this. Jesus spent time teaching. I want to talk about that for a minute, because it's critical. There is a reason why we do this. He talks, he spent time preaching, and then as I said, he healed people. Let's look at verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee. Now, as you read that, don't think that he necessarily stopped in every home. But the context is pretty clear. The Lord wants us to know he spent time in all of this region. Well, what was he doing there? Matthew says he was teaching. He was teaching, specifically in their synagogues. Now, what is teaching? Some of you are teachers. You know what that means. Teaching is passing on information, passing on knowledge, usually in a formal kind of setting where people gather around to hear what you have to say specifically about some subject so that you're much more clear about what that subject is. In this case, it's discovering truth, right? You go to school. Many of you spent lots of money to go to school or paid for your kids to go to school so that they will have clarity on some subject or subjects so that they understand it to be able to use it somehow. That's what teaching is. Pretty basic. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he was doing as he was making his ministry known. According to Matthew, he spent his time specifically teaching in the synagogues. Now, I'll come back to the synagogue because I think it's interesting for us to understand the Jewish mindset as Jesus was penetrating into the Jewish culture, his own culture. So his, we just need to understand that his focus was to go give this information about specifically the kingdom of God. That was the Lord's singular focus. Again, I come back to the same point. If this was the Lord's singular focus, shouldn't it be for his people as well? Shouldn't that really be the motive of our heart? In other words, how can we say that we follow the God of all gods, his singular focus was this, and we say to him, you know what? I tell you what, I'm going to go do this over here for a while and I'm just not going to really do that. That just doesn't make sense, does it? It's not logical. 
Now, we need to have a transitional shift that we say, no, my singular focus needs to be what the Lord's singular focus was, which was to share the gospel of the kingdom. Very, very simple, very clear. Now, what we try to do here, and you know this, is we try to have a teaching ministry. Every weekend you come in here, just like right now, and we learn the text of Scripture so that we accumulate information and we assess information accurately so that we can know that Christ is truly the Savior. We study the Scriptures so that we're, first of all, convinced because that comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And then we learn about the kingdom of which we're going to be a part of. That's what's so important about this. And at this point now in the narrative of Matthew, Jesus is about the work of reaching the house of Israel. Now I've told you before in the earlier messages that he would go up into Galilee and he was going to the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so he did certainly go after the Gentiles, but now we're told that he is specifically going to be shifting to working towards reaching his own people. So after he chooses his 12, he's going to exclusively go to the house of Israel. And we find that out in Matthew chapter 10. We'll get to that eventually. But let's go back to the synagogue just for a minute because I want to give you some of these thoughts here. If you've never been a part of a synagogue, if, if you've never been to a worship time, for loosely using the phrase, a, a synagogue, it's really fascinating uh, I've been a couple times to the one in Baltimore. It's really large, uh, very unique, very specific. This one particularly was liberal because there were women rabbis. That's not normal and orthodox, kind of like what uh, Iman was saying there. The service is somewhat benign in the sense that you just go in and there's a big scroll kind of on a stage like this and the rabbi will go and open the, these artificial doors. Sometimes they're real doors that are made to look like a scroll, but these were just make-believe kind of things. And they'd reach in and get the scroll out and they would lay it on the table and they would have a reading. And then there would be some song and then maybe a little bit of an explanation about the, the text there. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? So you see, that's what we do. It's the same thing. This is all translated over from that culture many, many years ago. So the synagogue was originally believed to be established during the time of the deportation of the Hebrews. You remember when they were taken into captivity and moved over into Babylon? Well, they couldn't get to the temple because they're in captivity. So they had to do something to have some connection with God, and so the synagogue was formed. Now, it was also true that a synagogue was needed because they just physically couldn't get back to where Jerusalem was. It'd be a long distance be a lot of miles for people to travel back in those days. And so they just couldn't do it. So the synagogue became the religious place of life. And if you don't hear anything today, anything else, I want you to listen to some of this because it will have an effect on your heart. The temple in Jerusalem was not for instruction so much. It was more so the place of sacrifice. If you've studied the temple, you understand that. And by the way, can I just put a plug in for the men's Bible studies and the ladies' Bible studies? We have a great time on Monday night at 6 o'clock and Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock. If you can make one of those two, we've been going through the Old Testament and reviewing all of this again. It's just a fantastic study. So just understand the temple was not for teaching or preaching. It was for that place of sacrifice. But the synagogue was where the daily activities of the Hebrew took place. 
It's where they would go to make their connections. They would do their worshiping. They would have their study time there. They would learn about the things of God. They would, yes, have fellowship. It was also the place where they would have legal activities conducted. If there was some means of transpiring between a neighbor and something needed to be made right, that's what they would do. In other words, it was the court of law, basically, for the Jewish person. Judgments were made there. And because that was such an important place in the Hebrews' life, everything was focused on. In fact, if we were traveling into another part of the Palestinian Hebrew world there, which wasn't Palestinian then, but then we would see in a village a synagogue as the highlight of the community. And often they would have a pole coming out of the top of them so that people could identify them from a long ways away. I don't know if it's still the same way or not. Today, does that sound familiar, what we have right out here? It's a, it's a spire, they say in England, or a, a, a steeple. Well, the purpose of that was to let the community know that this is where you come to worship God and to conduct your daily activities. And there are many, many stories about all this. In fact, it's really interesting when we're in Romania, um, one of the things that you see as you drive through the countryside, through the villages over in the far areas, you'll notice immediately the, the, the uh, steeple on the Orthodox uh, temple because they want that to be the predominant place that everybody recognizes. And so it was the same way here. So worship was always held on the Sabbath. That was a Saturday. Again, some of this you already know. Beginning at sundown on Friday, I'm not going to go into all of this, but it becomes important as we talk about uh, the Passover and the resurrection. So worship would begin Friday at sundown and ending on sundown on Saturday. So you had a long time there. Every second, you think I ask you to come here a lot? Every second and fifth days of the week, every second and fifth days of the week, the Jews had special services, and that didn't count the religious festivals that they would take part in. Whatever the other traditions were and everything else that they were a part of. During the Sabbath service, the sections of the law, and I already mentioned this, the Torah, that's the prophets were read, the law and the prophets were read, then prayers and singing and various responses, and then again the text of Scripture would be expounded. And often the rabbis would give honor to the teaching, which is what Jesus did, or they were honored by teaching, which is what Jesus did, and we see that in Luke chapter 4. So when you read that Jesus came into the synagogue and he was given the book to read, well, that was a customary thing for a visiting rabbi to do because that's what they did there. It was just normal life for them to have all of this kind of setting. It was also in the synagogue where the young boys were taught about their basic schooling. They would learn math, they would learn writing, they would learn reading, but they would also learn their theological studies. So I guess what I want you to understand is the point is, is that life revolved around the synagogue. They didn't revolve, it didn't revolve around the ice cream shop. It didn't revolve around the movie theater or the malls or the stone field or wherever else, the gyms, car dealerships. It didn't, it didn't revolve around those kinds of things. It revolved around, in our day, we would call it the church. I want you to think for just a second. How often are you distracted from your life centering around the church? 
How often are you distracted, pulled away, drawn away from the very place that God has intended to grow us? It's a masterful design, isn't it? It's also a masterful design by the enemy to keep us from the very place, and I'm not just talking about the building. The building is not the magic. I'm talking about the place that Christ's people come together, the church. If you can identify in God's mind the creation of the temple, which was the focus of worship, God had in his mind also for a place where the people could come together and be living life together. And folks, we just don't do that very well. We just don't do that well. Because again, we're distracted. And I'm talking to myself too. We have our own likes. We have our own dislikes. We have our idiosyncrasies. Brother Iman touched on it again this morning. Brother Jim touched on it this weekend. Where we have our ideas about the way life should go. And honestly, here's what really it comes down to. We just don't like those people that much. Because I've never met anybody that didn't want to spend time with somebody they truly loved. I use my wife and I as an example. My cousin told me when we were six months into our marriage, 32 years ago, praise the Lord. Oh, you'll get over that. He did. I'll never forget it. We were, I was chatting about how much I love being married, and he said, you're still in your honeymoon phase. You'll get over that. I praise the Lord. I haven't gotten over it. My point is, why would anybody in their right mind want to spend the balance of their life away from the God who loves them and did everything for them to rescue them out of darkness and even to give them a people group to be a part of to go distant, be distant somewhere else? You know what one of the biggest hindrances to this nation was? The West. Remember the phrase? Go West, young man. You know why? Because out there you got elbow room and freedom and nobody's around you. You can have it all. You can raise your own cattle. You can have your own farms. And nobody will bother you. Get out of the cities. Now, I'm not a city lover, okay? This is my flesh here. But what I am saying is this, is that Satan has used all of that stuff and I know God has used it as well. God has a plan in it all. But God has, Satan has so infiltrated the sinful flesh to make us believe it's better for us to just be alone. To be by ourselves. They're too frustrating. The people are too irritating. They don't agree with me. They don't like my ideas. They just think differently. So you know what? It's just best for you to live over there and I'll live over here. Now, granted, sometimes that needs to happen. Paul said that. We live at peace with each other as much as possible as it depends on us, Paul said. Right? In the mind of God, what I'm simply saying to you is that Jesus went to the very place that he knew would be the most sensitive of people. It would be the people in the synagogue. They were the ones who wanted to hear. And he knew that. I just wonder today how many times we as God's people really want to hear. 
do we really want to hear? Are we just distracted by our own flesh and our own feelings about things? And that's it. Church life. Can I show you a little slide that I've showed you before? Pasquale, did I give you this? Can you show this up here for a second? You've seen this. I mean, this will mean a lot to you because you'll understand this from the Muslim world. Remember this? Here's the American culture. This is God. And here's life. Remember I showed you this some time ago? It just fits so well in my mind because this is the distraction. And put whatever you want in here. Fill it out. In our American cultural mind, here's God. I'll show the next one, Pascal, if you will. In the Muslim world, God is life. You see the difference? Very simple, but very clear, very, very profound. I'm simply saying what God, I believe, is saying is that this should be the church. That everything we're doing in this life, immediately, immediately God is the center focus. Not just a part of it. But I'm afraid that that's exactly what's happened. God is just a part not the central focus. All right, let's keep going here for just a couple more minutes. Matthew goes on in verse 23 to tell us that Jesus not only taught, but he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. Now, we've already talked about this with John the Baptist. Proclaiming is to herald. It's to announce. It's to cry out. So teaching is explaining. Proclaiming is announcing. Both of them are essential. Because one of them gives the necessary information so that our brains can comprehend it. The other one pushes it into the heart so that the heart absorbs it. Because when you and I are touched in our hearts, we have a tendency to remember it, don't we? I mean, that's why most of the time you leave here on Sunday morning and you just have head knowledge, your heart's not been affected. So you don't remember it. But even as I say that right now, I know that you could immediately think of something that you remember because your heart was affected by it. You remember the first time you kissed your husband, don't you? You remember the first time you kissed your wife? Kids don't say that. You remember the first day of school? Probably remember kindergarten. You remember your third grade teacher? Think for a minute I can remember. You can remember traumatic events. I remember the day that my mom took me to school in elementary school and my Chuck Connors lunchbox opened up on the pavement and my jar of peaches fell out and crashed on the pavement. I was heartbroken. I can still remember mom being mad at me because I probably was swinging my lunchbox around or something. But yet week after week after week, we come here about the glorious truth of the gospel. And the fact that souls are dying and going to hell and need to be rescued and we walk away and we're unaffected. Because we have no connection. And the reason we have no connection is because we want to be isolated. And we don't really want to be a part of people's lives. We don't want to take the time. We don't want to spend the energy. We've got too much to deal with. I mean, I've got to come up with a meal plan for dinner. Kids got homework. Um... My stomach hurts, my head hurts, I gotta go to the doctor, gotta take the car in, 
oil needs changing, you know, my back hurts, whatever it might be, and we're just, we're just distracted. But I think, back to the picture, you don't have to go back to it, but just get that visual in your mind, is that what God really wants is that I want you to function in a society where you hear my teaching, not me, but God, you hear the teaching so that your mind gets it, but then it's penetrated down into your heart so that you move on what you feel, what you know to be truth. That's what Jesus was doing. He did both. In the synagogue, and by the way, there was never teaching without preaching. There was never preaching without teaching. They both went hand in hand. That's, again, why we do this. Okay, So don't feel yourself foolish for coming on a Sunday morning. This is what it's all about. This is what God prescribed. And that's, again, what we try to do every week. So teaching and preaching are not some crazy thing because we call ourselves Baptist. That's not something the Baptist came up with. We do it because it's God's method that he followed while he was here on earth that he wants us to follow to reach souls, to rescue them. And that's going to be our focus. We teach the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We don't get lost in economics. I'm not going to stand up here and talk about politics. I'm not going to do that kind of thing. I'm not going to talk about social issues. I will bring up issues as long as it relates back to the biblical text. But we're not going to make that our focus or anything that takes away from the rescuing of souls and glorifying God. We're not going to do that. At least it's not as long as I'm here. I can't speak for who you may bring in here after me. I pray that it's not a ravenous wolf, not sparing you, the flock. Jesus spent his time doing one thing. He taught the kingdom. He preached the kingdom. This was God in the flesh. And that's why when he was questioned at times about things like, well, Jesus, whose money does this belong to? It's got Caesar's name on it. So do we give it to God or do we give it to Caesar? What do you say? Hey, it's got Caesar's picture on it. Give it to him. Give to God what belongs to God. I'm not going to argue with that. Don't distract me with that. That's not the point. The point is, serve God. Don't get lost in these things. And we, beloved, get lost in a lot of things. We get lost in a lot of things. Jesus didn't come to deal with slavery. And that's a big social issue. He didn't come to mend the social climate. It's a big buzzword, a big topic. He didn't try to make it a culturally relevant community. He didn't spend time on that. He preached the kingdom. And he proclaimed the kingdom. He didn't try to get Israel back in line politically. He didn't tell the people who to vote for, whether it was Pilate or Herod or anybody else. He didn't hold rallies. He didn't stage anything else. He didn't clarify what they should be doing or what discussions they should be having except about the kingdom of God. That was his central focus. If you focus on hearing the word and you let it sink into your heart, the Holy Spirit's going to guide you and then you're going to know what to do. Now what James says, if you lack wisdom, what? Ask. Ask God and he'll give it to you. Now the answer may not come immediately. We don't have time to get into all that, but the Lord will give you the answer. And listen to this, as you pour the Holy Spirit's truth into you and you let the emotions of it all touch you and affect you, your relationships are going to change. This is just basic. This is so basic. But it's so amazing how many people miss this. You want your relationships to change? 
You want them to be better? Keep hearing the word of God. Let it go down into your heart. Husbands and wives will get along with each other's wives and husbands will get along with each other. Churches will get along with each other. Brothers and sisters will get along with each other and on and on it goes. It's a very simple plan, but it is flawless as long as we go with it. Everything will change because people are going to see that your heart has changed because you listen to God's word. You want your kids to grow up with a godly mindset? Work on their heart. How do you work on their heart? You learn the Word of God. You read the Word of God. You pour your heart into the Word of God and let that ooze out over in your life and they'll see that. Now they have an option to decide whether they're going to follow it or not. That's between them and the Lord. But that's where it all begins. And you can apply this to anything, your neighbor or anything else. How do you work on the heart? You share Jesus. That's exactly what Iman brought to us this morning. The reason Muslims will change is not because Iman's a nice-looking guy and Mary's a beautiful woman. They're going to hear because they love Jesus and they're passionate about Jesus. And they want to know. That's what Iman said to us this morning. What? Your God's not the same as my God? No. Tell me about him. I want to know. He's just not a bit of information. In fact, I would say, Brother Iman's not trying to change the Muslim world, are you? No. It's not his, that's not his ability. He's not in Sterling, Virginia, trying to change the Muslim world. What he's trying to do is rescue souls by just giving them the gospel and let God do the rest. But we, beloved, have to be engaged. We have to be engaged. We have to be paying attention. Let me just give you an interesting thing here and we'll, we'll finish. Interesting distinction. When, the, when John the Baptist came, he didn't proclaim good news. Think about it. He said, repent. What John gave was judgment. John said, listen, if you don't repent of your sins, there's only one thing that's going to happen. You're going to be under the judgment hand of God. But if you notice, when Jesus came onto the scene, what did he say? Repent, but I'm bringing you the actual kingdom. I'm bringing you the good news. And that's the message that we have, beloved. That's the message we have. We have the message of good news. Paul said it this way. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This was Paul's message. Right here in 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That was the message. When we're out in the world, that's the message we have for our neighbors and everybody else. The bad news is we're destined to hell without the rapturing, without the saving work of the Lord because we've all sinned. The good news is, is that Jesus died for us. It's just that simple. It just doesn't have to be difficult. Now at this point, Jesus' ministry, he was just beginning to make that news clear. He's going to fulfill it at the resurrection. And then people would really see. You know, the disciples didn't even really believe until after he was resurrected. And once he was resurrected, then they believed. And interestingly, Jesus' words, because we're talking about two of these things here, he used his words. We'll get to the miracles later. But he used his words and people believed his words. And in fact, the text of Scripture tells us that nobody could refute his words. Have you ever been in an argument? Anybody on a debate team? 
I was too scared to be on a debate team because I knew I'd get run over. But on a debate team, you know, you present an argument and you, you state your case and then the other team states their case and the winner comes out, whoever made the best case. Nobody could refute Jesus. In fact, we're told that right here in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Matthew 22, 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. That's awesome. Well, that's because he was God. What's Matthew showing us? His words, number one, through his teaching and his preaching, proved he was God come in the flesh. Once it came down to the bottom line, nobody could say anything against him. And in my mind, as we close right here, I think what challenges me the most for each of us, and you know, this is just, you've sat under my teaching for a lot of years now. We must know enough intellectually about the Bible and in our hearts so that no man will refute us. And you say, is that going to make us fallible? Yes, we're going to be fallible. Are we going to be perfect? Absolutely not. But one of the greatest tragedies of the church is that we go out into the world hungry for souls, but we don't know what to tell them. We don't know how to answer questions. We don't know how to give them the proper information. We don't know how to give them the whys. Why do we do this? You know, somebody might really be zealous to go out and say, I want to win my neighbor for Christ. And they go out and they say, well, why are you doing this? Well, because the preacher said we got, got to do it. Okay, that's a good start. The preacher did say that. But you can't go out and doing that. You've got to go out and say, no, because he is the Christ. He is the Savior. He's come to give life and life more abundantly. And if you don't listen to him, you're destined for eternal damnation. You've got to listen. You've got to listen. Listen, he changed my heart. I can't give you all the theological reasons of what he did, but I can tell you this. I was this way and now my life is this way and everything's different. And it's because of Jesus. And I go to that church over there because they believe the same thing. They teach the same thing. They proclaim the same thing. And I'm learning and I'm growing and I just want you to know that Jesus is God. And he'll rescue you out of your misery, which by the way, in our part two, that's what he does for people. He proves it. He's going to show them, okay, I can heal that. I can heal that. I can fix that. I can do that. And that's what he wants to do for us. Okay? So let us go into the marketplace, biblically speaking, the culture, the parking lot right out here, and stand on what we individually believe, not on what we believe just as a church, but what we individually believe, because when we individually believe it, then we will take it out as a church, and the community will see. The community will see. I love what Brother Iman said again. It starts, we have to make sure that there's no sin among us, we got to forgive each other. We got to love each other. We got to prove that we love Jesus inside the walls, right? And then we can love people outside the walls. We're not going to be able to love people outside the walls if we say, oh, come to church, come to church, come to church, and they come in and you say, well, let's sit over here because I don't really like that person. That's crazy. Okay. You get the point? Do I need to keep going?
All right. Okay, good news. God has rescued us. Good news. We have a wonderful Savior. Praise his name. All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for our day today. Thank you for this awesome weekend. Thank you for the truth. Lord, bury it deep in our hearts. May Jesus not just be someone we learned about as a child, but someone who is intimately involved in our lives today. And we are intimately involved with him today. Thank you for Brother Iman and Miss Mary and Lord, their precious children. Lord, I pray protection over them, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Lord, that you would continue to use them in Sterling, Virginia. Lord, continue to give them a heart and a hunger for souls. And Lord, I pray that you would also do the same here. Lord, we would never, never, never grow weary of hearing the teaching and the preaching of your truth. It was your plan. It's your method. Lord, thank you for proving to us through your words that you are Christ. Thank you that no one can refute you. Thank you, Lord, that you are God. We serve you today. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.